thing worth saying. Um, Chris Prytower, who does the announcements, is sort of my spiritual son. So I have to apologize for all the things that he says and does. <laughs> We're not really... Well, we weren't planning on worshiping the God with skateboards, okay? That's not really why this is here. The drama department put this here for us to play with, but they didn't intend skateboards. But should kids bring their skateboards, we won't let you do it. So, set you up. God giveth, God taketh away. Do you have your board with you? Okay. You are not going to be on it. We're here at the pleasure of the Poway Unified School District. There's things that they wouldn't approve of, and that would be one of them. Oh, man, you guys, I just got to tell I don't know if I should tell you this, but John started. We had, we had one of the first spirit-filled churches in my city, large city in Canada. And um, we, were, we were a lot like this. You know, worship was a rock band, and we took a lot of risks and liberties with the Spirit of God. And the word got out around the city that we were the, the new crazy people, which wasn't true. Well, present company accepted. But uh, so anyway, this, the, 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 a lot of bad things, a lot of false things were being said about us. And I was at a pastor's meeting one time. And uh, one of the pastors, I, I've got a kind of a, I have a sense of humor, much like Chris's. I really enjoy shocking people just to see the reaction. So a pastor I knew well was going to introduce me to a new guy to the group from a very conservative tradition. And uh, the, the new guy walked up, and my friend walked up, and my friend said, uh, uh, Bill, this is, this is Pastor Mark. He's from the Vineyard Church. And the guy literally took a step. He was going to shake my hand, and he took a step backwards, and he had fear in his eyes about this big around. And I thought I'd have some fun with him, so I said, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. You're, you're worried about some of the things we do in worship. I said, like the sacrificing of chickens. I said, I know it sounds crazy, but have you ever really thought about the sacrificing of chickens? And this guy's eyes are like this. And my friend is watching this thinking, oh, God, here he goes again. <laughs> the guy really, for a few seconds, he believed me. And that look of utter fear on my life is one of the high joys. It's one of the moments that I cherish in, in, my, in my comedy career. Now, with that kind of silly introduction, how do you turn your attention to the origin of evil? But we're going to make that rapid transition. Um, this is for you if you've never been here before. Let me just give you a little explanation of this sermon. I've been teaching for, I don't know, 35 years, I guess. And every single time, I'm teaching from the Bible with biblical references. Can you all go like that? Because that's the only right way to teach. For the first time in my life, I'm not doing that today. All right? So don't go away and leave the church and say they're heretics, they don't teach from the Bible. This is one exception in 52 Sundays over 35 years. And let me explain why. I'm not going to be using biblical references because this is the close of this goodness of God series. And if I were to take all the references I want to take as proof text for the things I'm going to say in general terms, we would be here for three or four weeks. And I don't want to do that. But I challenge you to this. Take what I say, go to a good Bible dictionary or systematic theology text, 
and take the statements that I've said and then you research them and you find all of the references for it and you'll find that it's a very worthwhile thing to do. So that might be a growing experience for both of us. But I don't have a lot of Bible references for you today. But if you hear something that you think is wrong, then you let me know and we can talk about proof texts. Okay? Can you grant me that grace today? Because we've got a lot to get through. So let's try getting through it. Here's the problem. We start with a very good question, which Alicia Ragsdale brought up, and it got me to thinking. And the question was something like this. If God is only good, and God is the creator of all things, where did evil come from? And that's a really, really good question, because logically, you've got to say, if God is all good and God created all things, then God's responsible for evil. That's the logical conclusion of those two statements. Can you have an all-powerful God who created all things and who is only good and at the same time have evil in the world? This raises the question, what is evil anyway? Who is responsible for it? I want to start with a popular reference, uh, the world in which you and I have grown up, particularly in the movies and television. In the movies we watch today, we have what the theologians call a dualist view of God. There are two forces in the universe coming to clash together of equal power or not equal power because it's Hollywood and somebody has to win and the good guy has to win. So although there's this tremendous struggle between the force of good and the force of evil, good will win out in the end, but only by about a quarter of an inch with enough doubt to get you ready for the next movie that's going to come next week for the next clash between good and evil. That's a dualist view. Two eternally self-existent forces clashing over good and evil throughout all time and eternity and all physical dimension. But that is not the Christian position at all, not even close. It may make for good drama, but it does not represent our understanding, the biblical understanding of good and evil. Here's the interesting thing. If God created all things and God is good, evil has no independent existence apart from God. There was not some self-existent evil force that existed throughout all time. Evil must somehow be a consequence of God's creation. It must somehow, even if it can, fit in with the goodness of God. Because God is the only self-existent The only self-existent thing in the universe. He is outside of time and space. He has always existed. He is self-existent. Everything that we see and experience is derivative. It's a derivative reality. It comes from him. So somehow our understanding of evil must fit in with our understanding of God's goodness. Which sounds like a contradiction in terms. But actually it's not. Evil is essentially the absence of good. It is what happens when you choose not good. It is no coincidence that the Bible uses light and darkness as analogies for good and evil. Darkness has no existence. It is simply the absence of light. Isn't that interesting? It has. You, you can't say, I'm going to give someone a pound of darkness. 
I'm going I'm to give, give someone the experience of darkness. Well, then you have to shut out the light. Light is the pre-existent reality. Evil is merely the absence of light. Evil is the absence of goodness. It is essentially parasitic in nature. Without goodness, evil can't exist. It is the denial of good. Now, the pre-existent good is God. God is the pre-existent good. He's the ultimate reality. He is the only thing that is eternal and self-existent, and also he is infinitely more powerful than the evil that opposes him. These are not almost equal forces having an arm wrestling contest. This is the creator of everything, arm wrestling with one of his creations, which is pathetic compared to the creator. So why does he allow it? What, what, what use is something so ugly as the alternative to good? Why does it exist? Now, here's the statement that's going to make you probably pretty upset. And you're reaching for the heresy button. So you're going to have to give me a minute to explain what I'm about to say. But I think you'll get it when we go through it. God allows evil to exist because not to do so is contrary to his very nature. Any, any worlds tilting right now? God allows evil to exist because not to do so is contrary to his quintessential nature. What do I mean by that? And it needs explanation. Guys, there's a couple places in the Bible. Here are a couple of references for you where God is pressed to define himself. Someone says, who are you really? Moses was told to go to Pharaoh and, and speak on God's behalf as his representative. And, and uh, Moses had a good relationship with him. He said, who shall I say sent me? He's talking to a burning bush. That's a unique experience, isn't it? Bush is on fire and it speaks. He's talking to the bush. He says, well, there's something behind this bush. God isn't a bush. Who shall I say sent me? And God says this frustrating answer that has tied up theologians for thousands of years. I am that I am sent you. Thank you. You can hear Moses go, that was so helpful. I'm sure Pharaoh's going to understand exactly what I'm talking about when I says he is that he is, says he is and he is and he's. That's why I'm here because he is. <laughs> but it's an expression of his self-existence. I am the primal cause. I am where everything comes from. I, I've always been. I am that I am. But listen, it's not very useful, is it? Like if you had a, a, a non-Christian friend. And he said, tell me about your God. Tell me about your God. Uh, You speak about God all the time. What's your God like? He is that he is. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not particularly helpful. They're not going to go away saying, I want to be a Christian because he is that guy who is, who knows the guy who is the guy who is the guy. The burning bush is <laughs> really helpful. But, but in the New Testament, 
God chose to define himself three words. Three words to a human. What did he say? How did he define himself? God is love. God is love. Not God loves sometimes, or God is lovable, or God has his loving moments, or God highly values love. No, he said God is love. This is his, if you boil him down to his quintessential character, to what he is in the most basic and absolute, what you end up with is this one definition, the three words, God is love. Now that, guys, that raises questions. Okay, if God is love, not that he does love, but he is love, what does he have to be? What does he have to be to be love? He has to be more than one. Right? My friend used to say, my mentor used to say, God never gets up in the morning and walks to his window and opens it and says, I'm so full of love today, I love nothing at all. Love always has an object. For there to be love, there has to be a lover and a beloved. God, to be God, has to be at least two beings. Right? God has to be a relationship in order to be love. There has to be a minimum of at least two beings who give and receive love to one another in a relationship of love. Hello? Okay, well look, God is seeking to explain to us and to exemplify to us his nature constantly. He lives to communicate his love. He wants us to understand him. So he has given us a human institution with which to understand two beings in love with each other to the exclusion of all else for eternity. What is that institution? Marriage. So our God could get away with being two. Right? And that would be adequate. God is love. There's two beings. They love each other. It goes back and forth. Everything's great for eternity. But he isn't. He's three. Okay. Now we're getting a little closer to understanding him. What human institution is at least three sharing love amongst each other forever? It's a family. Our God is a family. Isn't that the coolest thing? And here's the neat thing. His love is infinite, so he can always have one more kid at the table for Thanksgiving. Always. In fact, he craves more kids. His love is infinite. It can't be exhausted. So he always wants one more to include in the circle of his nature. In the expression of love. He's a family. This is why the family and the local church are so important. As both love well, they each reveal the very nature of God. Christians make a really big thing out of the family. And they make a really big thing out of church. Do you see the reason why? 
These are representations of his quintessential nature. That's why we get so upset about divorce. And I am divorced and remarried. So I'm not coming here to judge. But it is a very... The breaking of a marriage absolutely unnecessarily is a violation of the nature of God. It's to mar his beautiful image. And tearing a family apart with unforgiveness and separation is to mar the image of God to his creation. Marriage and family are holy because they reveal a holy God. That's why we take them so serious. Church is holy because it reveals his very nature in our relationships with one another. That's why loving one another is his highest good. That's why the Bible makes such a big deal out of how we love one another. Anything less doesn't communicate the nature of God. All right. Good so far, but what the heck does that have to do with evil? Everything. If you pause to consider the nature of love. Two beings are going to have love forever in a marriage, or three, or four, or six, or ten in a family. What must each of the beings be in order for love to be real? Who said individuals? I'm going to get to that in a minute. That's very profound. And you said love. They have to be free. Love absolutely requires freedom. It is the one state of being between people that cannot be extorted or threatened or controlled or manipulated. If that happens, it's not love. The minute force enters into the equation, the minute manipulation enters into the equation, it's just not love anymore. Love has to be between free beings. I mean completely free beings. Anything other than that is not love. Okay, if that's true... Love requires freedom, then love is a free choice. And God so values love because he is love that he has made us capable of saying no to his love. Right? In order to have love, we have to be free, which means there's consequences. We get to say no to his love. And when we say no to his love, we discover dire consequences. Because when we're saying no to his love, we are saying no to perfect goodness. And when we say no to perfect goodness, we are entering into the absence of light. We are choosing an alternative to his goodness. And that alternative to goodness is evil. Because it is saying no to his goodness. And his goodness is the only real thing that exists. But when you say no to it, you, you're, you're, wa- you're walking away from everything. You're taking one step away from everything that is good. You are taking one step away from the source of all goodness. Right. And in the beginning, it may feel like pleasure because it involves physical sensation. But eventually, if you keep making those kinds of choices, you find you are living more and more in the absence of good in your life. And this state of being is rebellion, and this state of being is evil. 
And the consequences and things that happen are evil. Not because they're self-existent, because they're a denial of the good that you said no to as a free being who rejected the love of God. And by rejecting the love of God, you're rejecting the goodness of God. And you're now living in the absence, measure by measure, choice by choice, moment by moment, over a lifetime. If you continue saying no to his goodness over a lifetime, you will more and more exclude yourself from his presence. You will more and more exclude yourself from the source of goodness until you enter a state after your death, which is a place, a mental, spiritual, relational place of the complete absence of God. And the only thing you have in that place is the distant memory of what good felt like. And that goes on forever. And that is called hell. It's the irrevocable and final choice to exclude yourself from the goodness of God by your own choice. The choices we make contrary to his will for good results in evil. Now I want to get down to the individual issue. That for love in a family to be real, they have to be individuals, not clones. It's not a family if it's a hundred of me and God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus. I mean, that doesn't have 103 people in it. That has four people in it and... 99 clones. It's not legit. You have to be an individual. But before we go there, I want to say that the ability to make choices contrary to his will is not some sort of mistake that happens occasionally by accident. We don't accidentally choose not good. We have within our very nature a tendency to choose our own will instead of his. It is not an incidental accident that happens sometimes. It's a consequence of our individuality. And more than anything else, it's a consequence of our self-awareness. Let me explain that a little bit. We have within our very nature a tendency to choose our own will instead of his. This tendency comes as a result of another choice God had to make in order to facilitate his love. His individual love seeks not, excuse me, his infinite love seeks not just a free person to live love with, but many free persons to live family love with. As I said earlier, his love is infinite. He wants unique expressions of his love. He wants his love to have to adapt to individuals and love them uniquely. He has the capacity to do it. So why not have three or four or five or seven billion unique individuals in the world that he can love? Now that's what he did. In order to have this love be real, each of the family must be an individual. An individual free person with a consciousness of their own individuality and uniqueness. He didn't make Adam and then billions of clones. 
that would not have expanded his love and it would not have resulted in anything we would consider to be a true family. Am I making sense? His loving nature is revealed more fully as he has more and more separate and unique relationships of love. You know how he solved the problem physiologically? DNA. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions of combinations such that there is no other you in the universe. Even if you are a twin, you're still unique. And he has the capacity to love each of those billions of unique persons as if they were the only one that existed. His love is ridiculous. It's so big. And he's unsatisfied until he has more people to love. So he said, go out into the world and make as many lovers of me as you can so I can have a bigger family. Can you imagine his Thanksgiving table? Separate and unique relationships of love. But here is the problem. This is where the rubber meets the road. Our sense of our unique self is what facilitates our self-centeredness and our pride. When I become aware of my uniqueness, when I become aware of my individual self, I begin to desire to distinguish myself from all the other selves around me because I am proud, because I am self-aware and self-centered. So now sin, as the absence of good, is not an accident. It's natural to me because I don't just compete with all the selves in this room. My self-awareness competes with the source of my selfhood. My self is humiliated in the presence of perfect self. My pride has to bow down in the presence of the source of all self. And I don't know about you, but my pride does not like to bow down to anybody. And I do not want to sacrifice my self-awareness for your self-awareness. I don't particularly want you to do well in worship. I mean, I, I kind of, Josh, I like you and all. And on and, and a weak moment, I say I love you. But, you know, your success takes the spotlight off of me. And I'm leading worship next Sunday, and you just knocked it out of the park. And frankly, I don't like that very much. Could you, could you just do a poor job a little more often? I love you, Mark. That would be, thank you. Do you get good for evil. Stop. <laughs> Just return good for evil. Do you see how it works, people? Do you understand you have a default position? You have a default position towards self-centeredness, towards self-preference, toward distinguishing yourself over above all the other selves around you and the source of all selfhood. It's what it is to be an individual. 
It comes with the turf. That's why the Bible calls it original sin. Because you were born with that tendency. You didn't have to choose it. It kind of comes naturally. Which is the problem. Because he can't take away your individuality to heal you from it. That's pretty profound. He cannot, he cannot solve the problem of your individuality by taking your individuality away. Because if we then there wouldn't be love. It gets a little complicated, but you know what I'm saying? I put it down here. It sounded really good. Hang on. I don't know. We'll get to it. It's, it's good. But this is better. It said it better here. In a minute, it's going to come up and you'll go, whoa. Wow. That was deep. Our sense of unique self is what facilitates our self-centeredness and pride. Our self, our sense of self is what drives us to put ourself ahead of him and every other self that he's created. And this ability to be self-aware of our uniqueness is what fuels most of the evil choices that we make. Now, not obviously evil, just selfish. Just not the good. It alone It alone, this tendency, is almost adequate to explain the evil that we see in the world. Almost, but not. Because human evil is supercharged by a source of supernatural evil at work in the world. We're not the only nasty little self running around. Our little human selves are not the only occupants of this this universe. There are supernatural beings created by God. And we are not the most powerful ones of them. At work in our world are supernatural beings that have totally and completely said no to God's plan for good. I mean, walked across the line that they knew was there and said no more of the good. We will assert ourselves under our leader. And we will be committed to the destruction of his good wherever and in whomever we find it. The Bible tells us that at some point the apex of God's creation succumbed to pride and began a self-love of universal proportion. He is called Satan and he is the origin of rebellion against God. He deceived one-third of God's created angels and was expelled from God's presence along with his minions. Now this is, this is, this is a profound reality and it's in the book of Ephesians. You might want to go hunting for this. In order to make clear to all those supernatural creatures that remained in heaven with him, that had never experienced rebellion, but they're watching it happen by a third of God's created angels leaving with the apex of God's creative genius, Satan, two-thirds remain. Now, there's an object lesson here. In order to make clear to all those supernatural creatures that remained with him, to make clear the goodness of him, of God, and the evil of rebellion, God allowed Satan and his minions to retain the power they were created with. They get to leave in rebellion and go with every bit of the power they were created with. And guess what? So do you. Oh my God. 
Christians, they're all alike. Once you become a Christian and give yourself to Jesus, you turn under this little religious clone. All of your individuality is gone. No, actually, your individuality is so protected by God that he'll never deny you of it, no matter how rebellious you choose to be. His respect for your individuality is perfect. So he allows you all of the, all of the creative power that you have to go and do whatever you want, including evil choices. Because if he doesn't do it, if he doesn't allow you that freedom and takes it away, he's destroyed the very reason for your existence. It is contrary to his nature to prevent evil from happening because it would deny his good and it would deny your relationship with him and it would deny the beauty and the individuality of you. And he has so much respect for that. He allows you all of your freedom when you rebel. And all of your freedom has consequences. And they're evil. Here's the the one I loved. God's solution to evil in his creation is not to violate the nature of his, create, of his creatures in order to redeem it. Are we, is that up there? Because I want to read it again. I love this. God's solution to evil in his creation is not to violate the nature of his creatures in order to redeem it. To deny them their very nature would be to make worthless their redemption. That is so good. I don't know. A God told me. I was writing it and it just popped into my head and I thought, that's so good. To deny them their very nature would be to make worthless their redemption. So, where does this leave us? In the middle of a civil war. We're living in a civil war. A war of rebellion is taking place around us and within us. Don't you ever think... That the dividing line between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness is somehow outside of you. That dividing line runs right through your choice. Right through each one of us. We get to be on God's side or we find ourselves by default on Satan's side. And that happens every time we make even a minute free choice away from the good. I told you this story. When I became a Christian, I was a horrible person. I mean, really, really nasty and profoundly selfish. And when I came to know the Lord, he shone this light (laughs) into my darkness, and the darkness was expelled enough for me to see how really bad I was, if that makes any sense. And I was shocked and overcome by the depth of my selfishness. It really was frightening. And I said to him, what are you going to do about this? This is horrible. I'm way worse than I thought I was. The closer I get to you, the more disgusted I am with myself. I'm seeing a depth of sin I never saw before. You've got to come in and nuke me. I mean, you just got to destroy all this selfishness that's inside of me. You've got to do it because I don't have a clue. I can't handle it. What are you going to do? I said, where are we going to start? And I really thought that actually I did do this. I thought he was going to make me give up Monday night football (laughs) in order to love my then wife. And I thought he would start with something 
sacrificial like that. But he didn't. I said, what do you want me to do? And I've told you this before, and it's funny, but it's really true. He said, you know how you always take the last piece of pizza? And I said, yeah. Like, yeah, I always take it. And he says, you know how you always take the biggest one first? Which I still do, by the way. I wasn't going to say anything. I know it's true, though. I'm not going to lie to these people. They don't deserve it. They've had enough of that already. Um, He said, you know how you, you always take the last piece of pizza? I said, yeah. I said, stop doing that. I said, that's it? This is the thin end of the wedge that's going to destroy my, my selfishness and my self-centeredness and all this evil. I said, this is it? The last, don't take the last piece of pizza? He said, yeah, that's a good start. And that's where we started. And you have no idea how hard it was. Because I find my eyes will not leave the last piece of pizza. I'm looking at everyone else to see when they're going to make their move. And I'm getting ready. And how fast? I'm hoping the lights will go out. Because when the lights go out, they won't see. And I'll grab it. And when the light goes back on, there'll be five forks in my hand. Because a real thief doesn't use a fork. A real thief grabs it with his hands. So that was the beginning, you see. Anytime you start choosing the good, even when it's little, you are moving in the direction of the good. And you're beginning to train your personality and your character to prefer the good, to prefer the unselfish, to prefer the most loving thing for somebody else. And it might be tiny little gestures, but God's so good because he's into baby steps. He's really into baby steps. He doesn't say, you've got to do something impossible for you, because he knows we can't do it, and we'll just end up in self-hate, which isn't helpful. Really isn't. So he starts with some little thing you're able to do. And you do it. And people, it's strange, but it makes you feel really good inside. Because the good force of his love living inside of you by the Holy Spirit is now beginning to penetrate into your selfishness. And it's bringing change. And you find, I kind of like this. I like me better now. Here's my definition of the good thing about Christianity. I like me better now than I did then. I know it's selfish, but I like who I am better now than who I was then. Civil War. Here's an interesting consequence. Sin exists because God values love above a perfect, sinless world. Isn't that wonderful? He actually values love above a perfect, sinless world. Here's another way of saying it that you should find very comforting because I sure as heck do. God loves you more than he hates your sin. Just let that sink in for a minute. See, the church I grew up in was all sin-centered. Every sermon was about getting rid of sin. Didn't work. Didn't work. But when you focus on his love and his goodness, and and you understand he loves you more than he hates your sin, the only reason he's upset about your sin is because it's getting in the way of loving you and you loving him and you loving others. That's why he's so bummed about sin. Because it's just the contrary of good. 
He loves you more than he hates your sin. Now I'm going to finish with this. Some have been tempted by all of this, what we've said, to reach the conclusion that because God made us free and knew we would sin, he must be held responsible for our sin. You made it possible. I just did it. So it's really your fault. You made me do it by making me free. But this is only possible if we ignore the fact of our freedom. We actually are free. We're not under compulsion from God to do good. We're truly free. We are entirely morally responsible for our free choices. Yet the argument remains that God allowed us the ability to say no to his goodness. Does he bear responsibility? No. He is incapable of either sinning himself or tempting us. But listen, and I love this. He has taken the initiative to clean up our mess with the entire cost being paid by himself. This is the good news. This is why we call it good. He has taken the... He's not responsible for our sin, but he will take responsibility for fixing the mess if we will let him. And he did this. He has taken the initiative to clean up our mess with the entire cost being paid by his very self. The sacrifice of himself in the person of Jesus on the cross is God's answer to the problem of evil. He didn't create the problem, but he did allow it. And his answer is to pay the price of our evil and to remove us forever from its eternal consequences. Of all the good that he is and all the good that he has shown us, this is the greatest and the least deserved. For this, we freely choose to give him eternal praise. Is there anybody here who maybe for the first time you understood how this all works? Maybe for the first time you see, I really am a sinner. It is my nature to say no to goodness and to say yes to myself. And that is the root, and I get it. And, and for some reason, I really get it today. I really, really understand this. And I don't like what I'm looking at in myself. And I want to be free of that, and I want a source of goodness living inside of me as a resource which will gradually change me and set me free. I want that. What you're really saying is, I want him. Because goodness isn't a force, it's a person who loves you more than he hates your sin. And who loves you more than you love yourself. And who seeks a relationship with you that begins today and never ends. A relationship of love which will gradually transform you into a person that can survive heaven. Who can be in the presence of perfect holiness and goodness and not be completely consumed by it. And maybe you've been thinking about that. And if you have, I want to invite you to to accept him 
today and to accept his gift of his love and his sacrifice dying on the cross so that you could know him and you could have him living within to transform you. Okay? Okay?